0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this evening's program at the Commonwealth Club of uh, California. I am pleased to be here in person, finally, um, to open tonight's program for the sold-out crowd. I also want to welcome uh, the many people watching the program online around the Bay Area and also uh, around the country. Uh, In fact, I know there are people in Boston watching. Um, My name is Ken Broad. I'm a founding member of the Jackson Square Partners and a proud supporter of the Commonwealth Club. I'm particularly thrilled to be supporting um, tonight's program because, although the topic is divisive, it is of paramount importance, uh, and people who live here know that. I'm a longtime fan of the Commonwealth Club and its civic mission to convene the community on important issues. Thus, I'm particularly delighted that the club uh, has returned to hosting in-person public programs here at the beautiful headquarters on the Embarcadero. And you can see this is really a temple to ideas. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, I encourage you all to learn more about the club and its in-person and online offerings at www.commonwealthclub.org. Tonight's featured speaker, uh, while you're all here, is Michael Schellenberger. Michael's new book, San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities, has been an international sensation since it was published late uh, last fall. The book and its arguments about crime and homeless policies have attracted international attention and rightly focused the eyes of the world on the moral tragedy unfolding daily in the streets of San Francisco. Um, The dystopian streetscape that Michael describes is actually why my firm moved recently from the financial district to the Presidio, which is federal property. One of the most important concepts from the book that I'm hoping Michael will elaborate on is pathological altruism. This is well-intentioned behavior that actually harms the intended beneficiaries. Uh, Pathological altruism can be directly contrasted with what moral philosopher Peter Singer describes as effective altruism. San Francisco desperately needs to replace pathological altruism with more effective altruism. Um, This is Michael's latest book. When he's not writing books, Michael is the founder and president of Environmental Progress, an organization based uh, nearby Berkeley with a mission of achieving nature and prosperity for all. With a particular focus on promoting nuclear energy. Uh, Michael will be in conversation with the moderator, Melissa Kane. Melissa has a long history in San Francisco, is an attorney, political analyst, and is one of the club's most popular moderators and guests. So, with that, I am pleased to welcome Michael Schellenberger and Melissa Kane to the stage to discuss San Francisco. Thank you.
0: Hi. Hello everyone. As you have heard repeatedly, this is Michael Schellenberger. This is the book we're going to be talking about. I have many questions and I'm sure y'all do too. So don't hesitate to fill out those question cards and we will ask them throughout the program. And with that, welcome Michael Schellenberger.
2: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you guys for coming. It's really wonderful to see so many familiar faces Um, I first want to start by thanking the Commonwealth Club and uh, Ken Broad for uh, bringing me here tonight. I consider it a real honor and a privilege to be here. I also am very delighted to have my wife, who I dedicated my book to, Helen Lee, is here with us. You may remember her from the acknowledgments page. Um, And my son, Joaquin, I'm happy to say, has also joined us. But most importantly, I really uh, wanted to draw attention to the fact that many of the characters, the nonfiction, real-life real characters from the book are here, and I just wanted to honor them for sharing their time and their stories with me, and I'm hoping that each of them would stand up and we can, uh, and please join me in giving a round of applause. Tom, Vicki, I see you there. Would you please stand up? I think we may have lost it. We may have lost a couple of characters as well that may not have made it. I think one of them has, is sick with COVID. So this, is, um, this book was for San Francisco. It's a book for liberals and progressives. It's really, of course, for everybody in San Francisco, everybody in America. I had many motivations to write this book. Uh, first and foremost, I am just devastated uh, emotionally by what's happening on the streets. I think it's profoundly unethical. I think it's profoundly unnecessary. There's no reason for it. I was delighted to share stories from the Netherlands, which I think is a world-class example of how you deal with people suffering from late-stage addiction and serious mental illness, how you deal with folks that are suffering from homelessness. Um, I uh, also wanted to answer many questions that I had, which is how do people who care so much – there's no question about the the amount of caring – allow for so much suffering to exist. And that question alone sparked a significant amount of upset just in asking it. But I am a strong believer in some of the principles of psychotherapy, which suggests that um, when you don't deal with uh, difficult, painful issues, they have a way of ruining your life and ruining your society. And so the purpose of San San Francisco, I feel, has already been achieved, which is just to spark a conversation. Obviously, I'm continuing, or maybe not obviously, I'm continuing to uh, do investigative journalism on this, continuing to have an argument about it. But for me, just the fact that I can be here with all of you tonight, I think, shows that we've already made a huge amount of progress. So thank you very much, everybody, for coming. Um, I know many of you will be at the after party with us as well. And, Melissa, thanks so much for agreeing to this interview.
0: I'll be honest, Michael. When I saw the name and they asked me to do this, I was like, who does this man... Uh, I live here. Uh, I, I can talk. I can say mean things about my city, but other people can't. But but then I did some research and saw that you are also a Bay Area resident and someone with a long history in liberal and progressive causes. And, and I don't know if it should matter, but it does. It felt like you were, you know, they, it was coming from inside the tent. Uh, and so, can you talk a little bit about that perspective and how that has shaped the way you approach the issue and how people have responded?
2: Sure. So let's see, I was raised by two very liberal uh, parents, uh, four liberal parents actually, from uh, Colorado. My family, uh, both sides, come from the Mennonite uh, tradition, which is, a, which is sort of an anti-government, pacifist, radical Christian tradition. Um, I was a very liberal kid. I became very radical at a young age. I went to go uh, help the Sandinistas in Nicaragua in 1988. I've done field work as a journalist. I've really been doing journalism for 33 years, uh, since I was 17. Uh, Helped uh, Lula, helped Hugo Chavez. That's something I have in common with our district attorney, or with your district attorney. Um, Come out of the radical left, I I went through uh, a Quaker school where I have a degree in peace and global studies. I moved to San Francisco in 1993 to work with Global Exchange, which is a uh, anti-imperialist, anti-intervention organization. We went to Cuba together in 1993. I put pressure on Nike for having sweatshops. Uh, I fought for criminal justice and um, particularly to keep uh, uh, juveniles out of jails and prisons. I did work for George Soros' Open Society Institute in the late 1990s which is something that I talk a little bit about in San Francisco. I'm best known, I really spent the last 20 years focused on the environment and climate change in particular, but this was something that I did do work on in the 90s. And so part of my motivation was, you know, what went wrong? I thought we were advocating solutions to addiction and to the drug war, alternatives to the drug war that would work. And so when overdose deaths in the United States reached 70,000 in the year 2017, that was when I kind of came back to this and was like, something seems like it went wrong. And I knew about the opioid epidemic, but I also had remembered that in the year that I had stopped doing this in the year 2000, 17,000 people had died of drug overdoses. So the increase of death and last year, you may, everyone may know that it was hundred thousand deaths from drug overdoses and drug poisoning. So something clearly went horribly wrong. And I wanted to figure out what that was. And I think it's, there's some questions about identity, I think, in what you're asking. I, I still consider myself a liberal. I don't consider myself a progressive. I did recently change my party affiliation from Democrat to Independent. Uh, but I think if you read San Francisco, I think people that read it will see that it's basically a liberal book. It basically argues to do what every other civilized country and really what every civilized country in the world has done, since I exclude the United States from that category. Um, <laughs> And that includes Netherlands, Japan, Portugal. They all do basically the same thing, consistent with their cultural, with their cultures. But but they're all taking care of their sick loved ones, their sick family members, in ways that we are simply not doing.
0: Well, one of the things uh, about your book that some people like, some people have criticized, but you really can't deny the amount of statistics. In it, And I felt like it was actually important because I know I can't be the only one who has had this conversation with your spouse or with somebody at a party. We go, am I just getting older or is it getting worse out there? Like, you can't, it's not always obvious, right? You walk down the street and things bother you today that didn't bother you yesterday. And it's like, I don't know, is it me? Am I just like, get off my lawn now? Like, I don't know if it's that. But one of the important things about statistics that you bring in is that it shows Um, It's not just us. (laughs) We're not just getting older. It is actually getting worse in a lot of ways. So can you talk about your decision to really bolster your, your opinions on a lot of research?
2: Absolutely. So San Francisco and similar to my last book, Apocalypse Never, are both books that I consider to be complete books in the sense that if you want to know how to think about the environment, you should be able to get answers to all the big questions. If you want to understand how to think about crime, drugs, and homelessness, you should be able to get answers to all of those questions in San Francisco, and I think you do. The, the basics of it, you're absolutely right. So homelessness increased in California. The number of people that are, that are categorized as homeless increased by 30% over the last decade, even as it declined 18% in the rest of the United States. The, certainly the number of people that we classify as homeless in San Francisco has increased I also point out that the word homeless is really a propaganda word. It was actually a word that was designed to combine groups of people that should never have been combined, including a mother with two kids who has no underlying drug or alcohol problem or mental illness, who is just escaping an abusive husband that we're combining that person with somebody who is suffering from heroin or opioid addiction and has quit working, been kicked out of their house often because of their addiction and is living on the streets. And then we're combining that person with somebody with schizophrenia or a severe mental illness. And I wanted to unpack those things. So that's why there's chapters about drugs, housing, uh, mental illness. Um, so the book, yeah, the book definitely is, is not attempting. I always point out I'm not attempting to a lot of academics when they write books or even journalists. I think they have a view that they want to write a book that's super original. I, I think what's, if, if there's anything original about the book, I just think that it's a complete synthesis and an overview of these in some ways, I'm trying to trick people into buying a think tank report um, <laughs> by kind of bringing a lot of human stories to it. Same thing with Apocalypse Never. Uh, it's sort of an environmental textbook or it's sort of a textbook um, in here, but hopefully, um, you know, with sugar coated so that it goes down a little bit easier. It's not super wonky and dry.
0: Well, you certainly do bring in individual stories, and I'm so excited that Tom and Vicky are here. Anyone who's read the book knows it. You're both just remarkable and it, your stories woven throughout the book really sort of you know are what gives it color and you sort of brings these concepts to life. So everyone introduce yourselves after this program because they're really they're really great. So you do weave in their stories as well. Now, one of the things you do talk about is how homelessness at least to to a large degree is a substance abuse and mental illness problem. Um, and One of the studies that you cite is about sort of a self-reported statistic where people self-report very low uh, numbers of of substance abuse or mental illness causing their own homelessness. But you sort of say that's maybe not an entirely reliable statistic uh, that we should look beyond that for, for, you know, who the homeless people are by and large.
2: For sure. So the first piece I wrote, well, so I wrote a piece in 2019 for Forbes arguing that the governor ought to impose a state of emergency um, to be able to just build a lot of housing for the homeless. And a lot of people emailed me and they said, you know, dude, this is this is not just about housing. It's about drugs and mental illness. And I was like, oh, right, of course, I know that. But even I had been sort of caught in this this framing, this cognitive framing where the word homelessness makes you think it's fundamentally about housing. So then I went and did a second report and I just interviewed um, folks that work on Skid Row, which is the area where there's a lot of unsheltered um, street addicts, uh, people suffering mental illness in Los Angeles. And the first person I interviewed, I was like, how many people on the streets would you say are suffering mental illness or addiction? He said 100%. And I was like, 100% that seems really extreme. And he's like, this just, if you have economic, if you're like, you can't afford the rent, you don't come here you don't come here and live in a tent on the street. So I thought, well, maybe that guy's conservative. So I interviewed a very, um, (laughs) I did, I thought he was conservative. That was Andy Bales, by the way. So then I went and interviewed, um, I interviewed a a much more progressive harm reduction oriented source uh, named Susan Partovi, who actually ended up doing field work with in Skid Row. And I called her up and I said, well, how many people do you think are suffering mental illness addiction, she was like, it's a hundred percent. Like there's just Mm -hmm. nobody here. That's not here for some other reason. So yes, you're right. I mean, look, if you go up to people that are like living, that are camping on a sidewalk, you know, in the tenderloin and you're like, why are you here? I mean, first of all, I'm, it's shocking the large number of people that will, that will acknowledge that it's because of some addiction. Now, I mean, the other issue is that People with mental illness often don't think that they have mental illness. That's one of the characteristics of people in psychotic states, or whether it's from schizophrenia or, or or meth or or other uh, mental illness. So there's just a lot of people that won't represent that accurately, and then and then I think there's just not an interest in it because it's illegal, and so they don't want to be admitting to be doing illegal drugs as the reason for camping. I think the other issue is just that um, often people on the street are asking for money and they want something from the person that's interacting with them. So they don't want to give that reason because they know there's stigma against it. So I always point out, look, like I mean, I have not been able to find a single person on the street who was not mentally ill or not suffering from addiction. I'm, maybe that person exists. There's certainly people that like live temporarily in their cars. But for the most part, they, people that can't afford the rent, they do what millions of other people people do which is they move out of state they move in with friends and family they find other means and so i think it's a real disservice to the people who are living on the street because of their addiction and mental illness to suggest that they're there for because they simply couldn't afford the rent it may be that they couldn't afford the rent but that overlooks the fact that they couldn't afford the rent because they had stopped working because of their addiction or been kicked out of their house and quote-unquote disaffiliated from friends and family because they were their addiction had basically taken over their lives
0: well, one of the other things that you point out, and it's something that I think people in the um, in the activist circles for a while have been able to say, like, off the record, which is, like, we focused maybe a little too much on housing first, and maybe we need to also... Engage in some shelter building and really just sort of triage, (laughs) um, for lack of a better word, as opposed to, you know, looking to build everybody an apartment, um, because that's going to take a long time and and got a a lot of other difficulties attached to it. So you talk about that and and what the response has been.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, one of the things I'm most um, that I'm most proud of in this book is that I did. So it was interesting because this book was all, all entirely reported during COVID. So the interviews were almost entirely over Zoom and Zoom is such an interesting way to do interviews because, first of all, um, it has a, a, strong, a lot of intimacy because you're just face-to-face with somebody. It's recording at the same time. And the best thing everybody that does interviews knows that, like, once you're at, like, 90 minutes into an interview, people forget that they're interviewing and they've lost all inhibition and they'll just tell you anything. They'll tell you the truth. And that you have to spend a lot of time to get there. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, in this book, you'll see, like... The main radical left advocates for housing, the defenders of homelessness will say on the record that this is being driven by addiction and mental illness. I have the national um, homelessness advocates who are saying that if you just do what San Francisco has been doing, you should expect to attract more people suffering from addiction and mental illness and to live on the streets. Um, I I found a very progressive, long-standing homelessness provider in Berkeley— who says, yeah, the original wave of homelessness in the 80s was because of the crack epidemic, which was something that I had not pieced together before doing this book. So this is a book that, much more than Apocalypse Never, which had a lot of personal stories in it, this is a book where I really wanted to foreground the people in this space. And I know you're going to ask about it, so I'm just going to go ahead and preempt the question. The New York Times claimed that I didn't interview any homeless people, which is just the most outstanding lie. I mean, it's an incredible... Audacious lie. Having interviewed hundreds of homeless people for the purposes of this book, what I did do is showed respect for the ethnographers who literally lived with people on the streets for years. I'm a trained, I'm I'm a PhD anthropology dropout. I quit grad school, but I respect anthropologists. I respect the people that live with people on the street. And so, San Francisco relies heavily. On the ethnographies that were done, and some of the best ethnographies of homeless um, people in general, but certainly homeless addicts, are done in the San Francisco Bay Area. There's like three major ethnographies, so I did end up quoting a lot of other people's work, but for me, that was just a way of showing respect for the people that had lived in encampments for years at a time. I had not done that. I certainly interviewed a lot of homeless folks, but I wanted to pay respect and really foreground the folks, including the folks that I really disagree with in terms of their policy agendas, who had done that work of really getting into the lives of the people that live on the street.
0: So did you interview homeless people over Zoom? How did you do that? No, of course
2: not. No, 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 no. I I would go to the Tenderloin. I went to Tenderloin, Skid Row, The Blade. Um, We also happen to have a lot of homeless folks um, living in Berkeley near my office, which is uh, People's Park. Um, The correct word that we we say homeless encampments, but one of the first things I discovered in my research was that the Europeans called them open drug scenes. And there's a paper called Open Drug Scenes, uh, Cases from Five European Cities, and it looks at Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Lisbon, uh, Vienna, and Zurich. And people to this day, because of The Wire, the TV show, they look at what's going on, for example, in San Francisco and they go, oh, that's like Amsterdam, which was what they called an open drug scene that was sort of sanctioned by the city of Baltimore in this television show, The Wire, where they sort of um, they used it as a containment zone. But Amsterdam did do that, that's true, but then they shut it down, and it's something that people that watch The Wire I don't think quite understood, or people still don't understand. They think that Amsterdam may still have these open drug scenes, but what you discover is that those those five European cities all had open drug scenes. They all shut them down. They all did it the exact same way, a combination of police and social workers. So, anyway... So, yes, um, People's Park proved to be a very easy place to go and interview large amounts of folks on the street at once.
0: So why isn't it Berkeley, sicko? Why why are you coming across the bridge at us? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Uh, I'm just kidding. No, actually, talking about the 80s, actually, one of the things you do talk about in the book, and it's something that I hear all the time, is people blaming and, you know— I'm not defending Ronald Reagan, but a lot of people blame Ronald Reagan for the crisis. Yeah. Um, And so you do talk about like you say that it's actually let me just
1: um,
0: uh, in reality, it was a Democrat who got the institute deinstitutionalization of psychiatric hospitals rolling President John F. Kennedy. And so if you could talk a little bit about your research into that and um, and sort of the response to that, because it's something that you just always hear. Is, yeah. Reagan shut everything down and now the streets are filled. Have with
2: you books. heard it since the book came out?
0: Um, not recently. No, I maybe either. you fixed I think it. I might
2: have fixed it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's the first
2: thing that you get when you interview progressives about what's going on. And of course. You kind of go, as like a liberal, you kind of go, well, yeah, I mean, Reagan, the guy's source of all evil. I mean, naturally, it was Reagan. <laughs> but then you're kind of like, well, wait a second. He wasn't he president like 30, over 30 years ago? And hasn't California been in the hands of Democrats for, you know, a supermajority for, de- for over a decade? And don't we have a $30 billion budget surplus? So how could this possibly be because of budget cuts? So, of course, it's, it's not true. And it's not a defense of Reagan, by the way, who, who, I, who I think deserves some amount of responsibility both when he was governor in the late 60s and early 70s, and then also when he was president in the 80s. But I mean, I think what's, what's so striking, so there's two things that people blame Reagan for. They blame him for emptying the mental hospitals, and they blame him for cutting the housing budget, the federal housing budget. The The story of the closure of America's psychiatric hospitals is pretty well known, but basically, you get what you, we go through the Great Depression, I think the first thing to say about it is that people with schizophrenia and mental illness are the most difficult folks in our society to deal with. Uh, my aunt had schizophrenia, it was—it's just these are very difficult people. Before we put folks with mental illness in hospitals in the 19th century, they were many times being chained up in their basements, chained up in barns, killed. Bad things happened to folks before they went to hospitals. The hospitals were this big progressive achievement in the 19th century. You get through the Great Depression, you get through World War II, the funding was cut, there, was staffing, there were staffing shortages. Come out of World War II and people got in Life magazine published these famous photos of, of the terrible conditions in the hospitals. Many of the Quaker activists and the other activists are trying to fix the hospitals wanted to see more funding to improve them. But there was two things going on. There was some sense in which it would be better to treat mentally ill people in residential care, which is still the case and still something I support. And there was also some idea that you didn't need to require treatment from folks. So, those two things combined, it was j f k who um, signed the legislation that basically resulted in accelerated deinstitutionalization. Reagan certainly had a hand in it, but he wasn 't driving it by any means it was really being, it was really coming from progressives to shut down the hospitals and then and then to prohibit the mandatory nature of it, which remains today so ACLU continues to be the main group that is preventing. The mandatory treatment of folks um, with mental illness and then the other issue is just the budget cuts we went and pulled the original hard work by my my staff they deserve huge credit Um, Went and pulled the original budget funding for housing and Reagan it did slightly go down but it basically was flat when Reagan was president so he doesn't deserve the blame you could blame him for not increasing it but it's not the case that Reagan then cut the budget for housing.
0: Um, And actually, there's a a question here that kind of goes to this. Uh, How has this book been received by people in a position to do something? Because these are the people who say it's Reagan um, to do something about the homeless problem in San Francisco. Have you talked to elected officials or other, um, you know, other public officials who who might be able to maybe move toward more shelters and away from housing first or do some of the other things that you advocate?
2: Yes. So, well, of course, uh, everybody knows about the book. (laughs) Um, uh, I interviewed uh, several members of the – several folks on the Board of Supervisors. I know that several members of the Board of Supervisors have read the book. I had one member of the Board of Supervisors attack the book naturally without having read it. Um, And we had a little bit of an exchange on Twitter about it. Um, You know, I'm in a very funny place right now because I – I defended Mayor London Breed two weeks ago. I um, supported and and I I think helped to create the conditions for her announcing a crackdown on open drug dealing and open drug use in mid-December, I think December 15th. I was very happy about it. I was on Twitter just two weeks ago telling folks that are much more cynical about the situation that they should be supportive of the things that she had been doing. Um, but then last, late last week, I got a phone call from a friend who said that the um, the linkage center, which was supposed to be linking people suffering addiction to rehab, was also offering a supervised drug site on the same place. And so uh, Leighton Woodhouse, uh, another journalist here, and I went and went in. Uh, didn't misrepresent ourselves at all. We just said we would like a tour. Indeed, we saw that there was supervised uh, fentanyl, smoking, and other drug use going on in that facility. I found I was very annoyed by that, um, both because it's true that there is some amount of supervised drug consumption in Amsterdam, much more limited and in a larger context of getting addicts into the kind of recovery and treatment they need. And then we went back or then, um, sorry, uh, two uh, journalists uh, went back on sat- or Saturday, I believe. And then they they viewed and made video of drug dealing going on in a super in this city run supervised drug use site. I just published that yesterday. I find that disturbing. Um, it's easier for it would be easier for a 16 year old to go and uh, buy fentanyl in a city-run site right now than it is to go and get into a bar or a liquor store and buy alcohol. I don't know. That, that doesn't make any sense to me. That's not what's going on in Amsterdam. Um, I was disappointed by that. Um, I think that if the city really thought that was a good idea, then they would have been transparent that they were doing. They still, as far as I haven't read the Chronicle, I don't know if the Chronicle's even covered it yet, I have not seen the city even acknowledging that that's what's going on. So I am um, annoyed right now with the mayor and I'm and they have not responded to my repeated request for information. So we're in a very dynamic situation right now.
0: Was the drug dealing sort of out in the open? I mean, what was what aside from the fact that it was in the center? um, Was it, you know, condoned in any specific way beyond just sort of?
2: So we have 30 minutes of video that was shot by a very brave, uh, uh, journalist named Jenny Shao. I don't know if Jenny's here, but I hope she is. Um, yeah, there she is. She's embarrassed, but, uh, Jenny Shao, um, who got a co-byline with me on the piece that we published yesterday, um, shot extraordinary video and including of the drug dealer who sold the fentanyl and also of the people who then went and smoked it, uh, city contractors uh, including Paul Harkin of Glide Memorial and Gary McCoy of Health Right 360 I think it's important to actually explain who these people are they were the senior contractors they were on site they were feet away from the drug deal when it occurred I don't have proof that they saw the drug deal occur but we have video of the drug of the person who we who our reporters saw sell the drugs examining the bill as though checking it to see if it was counterfeit, with both McCoy and Harkin looking in his direction. So for me, that would constitute a fair amount of supervised. Um, So we are now fully beyond supervised drug use, and we're into supervised drug dealing. And my concern is that as this gets normalized, at some point somebody's going to be like, well, why don't we just provide free fentanyl? To people who say that they need it. I mean, that seems like where this is going. And it seems to me that we need to have a conversation about whether we think that's really the right way to do this. Because it's never been done before. It's not what Amsterdam does. Certainly not what, what Lisbon and Portugal does.
0: Uh, were the police around? Sorry.
2: The police were not around. The police, I believe, are, um, I mean, they, we, 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 we saw no police. There is security. Uh, but um, this is a safe place supposedly for people to um use drugs use fentanyl also meth was we have a video of people smoking meth in there so i i just think this is scandalous and i'm i'm sorry that um you know and i'm like actually kind of open to my my dutch character in the book Rene. he says look there's a small number of people that we couldn't get off heroin that methadone just wasn't good enough. That's the traditional opioid replacement for heroin. And, and I was like, well, how many people is that? And he was like, fewer than 150. And I was like, well, if you set that up in California, it'd be 150,000 people that would be signing up to get heroin maintenance. So that 150 people, that fewer than 150 people are people who the, the Dutch government has put, had already put significant pressure on. For many, many years to get on methadone and try to lead a more independent life, and it didn't work, and they were like, look, just let them have heroin. It's better than sending them to prison. That I'm completely fine with, but what we're doing in San Francisco does not come anywhere close to that. There was no amount of regulation involved. It was just letting people buy and use fentanyl on on what – and by the way, this is right in United Nations Plaza, which is public plaza – and I made clear in our reporting that we have a public right to shoot video of people in public spaces. They just commandeered this whole part of this public plaza. Like, when was there a debate around, like, maybe we would rather have that be a playground. Maybe we would rather not be with, like, a place full of armed, you know, drug dealers working for a dangerous criminal foreign cartel. Well. <laughs> Crazy, I know. that. But...
0: Well, and you do make the point, you know, in sort of dispelling some of the things that you hear about why people are in San Francisco. Some people say it's the weather. You talk about that. And then some people say it's because of the services. But you argue that it's not our services that draw people here. It's actually drugs.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's not any of those things. And by the way, I do think the weather has some role to play. I think the fact that it gets freezing cold in Chicago does reduce the amount of um, unsheltered uh, you know, street camping in Chicago. Um, But I point out that homelessness declined in other warm cities, including Miami, over the last decade. So warm weather is obviously not sufficient. Um, You do get a lot of people that say that they come here um, for the cash welfare, the free housing, the services. But, yeah, I mean, ultimately, where I came down was you have the amount of public camping that you allow. And. I think the other big discovery I made that, I'm, that took a, a fair amount of reporting, and I'm very proud to have gotten it, is just that the biggest opponents of building sufficient housing, sorry, sufficient shelter, have been housing first homelessness advocates who have insisted that that money be spent on housing, meaning very expensive apartment units, rather than the kind of sprung congregate shelter that we normally associate um, as homeless shelters. But yeah, I mean, I think, like, you know, when you interview people, when you, you know, you talk to folks on the street, you know, it's, um, Tracy Helton Mitchell, who wrote, I think, one of the best addiction memoirs of the last uh, 10 years, said that when she was uh, deciding where to go, when she became a heroin addict and she was trying to figure out where to move to, she's like, either I go to San Francisco or New York. And she came to San Francisco. So it's pretty well known that San Francisco is a place where people can use people can purchase drugs at low cost and use them openly and live homeless on the streets.
0: Well, and you also point out to the New York, actually, because they haven't been as homeless, I'm sorry, as Housing First uh, focused and have actually built a a pretty decent number of shelter beds and places for people to go has a different situation that we have as an example of a place where it can work to to have this ability to sort of triage in those moments.
2: Absolutely. So uh, at least before COVID, New York was sheltering 95 percent of its homeless so it's it's not rocket science. You, I, I do think people. I do think that people have a right to shelter. I don't think people have a right to their own apartment unit in the most expensive real estate markets in the country. Um, that just doesn't make any. That's just bizarre. Like you know, you read the Communist Manifesto. It's like not like everybody gets their own apartment unit in San Francisco. This is <laughs> completely twisted. But I do think that um, I think we have an obligation to provide shelter for our fellow humans. And you know, when you go when you when I shadowed uh, the Dutch social worker. And I'd be like, you know, we, we interacted with a guy suffering in a psychotic state, either from drugs or underlying mental illness, and he was like, you got to go to shelter. And I was, like, I was like, do you have a shelter bed for him? He's like, of course we do. We also have psych beds available if they need psychiatric beds and treatment. We have shelter, um, you know, and uh, we have residential care. So they have, you have to have the back end. I mean, I think ultimately when you hear people talk about little quick fix solutions to this issue – you know, like tiny homes is like the new fad now or um, or navigation shelters or whatever. It's like you have to just like there's just a proper way to treat people. And so I, we say just to simplify it, we go shelter first, treatment first, housing earned. You can get your own room like a lot of people want their own room, but you have to earn it through progress on your personal plan, which is often uh, quitting drugs, uh, taking your psychiatric meds if you suffer from some underlying mental illness going to work, there is some sense of, you know, they would always, the Dutch would always say, you got to have carrots and sticks. There should be something that people can gain from making a positive change, but also something that they could lose or some consequence if they don't. And that's, our system is just not, we're nowhere close to having that set up.
0: Well, one of the things you do point out is that some advocates for housing first really want it to be with no strings really yes. nothing to you know you yes. don't have to do anything to keep it you don't have to take your meds or or not right. <laughs> or you know what i mean like and, and so that was really surprising i yeah. think for anything people would be surprised to know that that's that's what they're talking about it's not like housing for people who are walking the straight and narrow and can kind of demonstrate that they can you know sort of reenter society it's Just housing and here's the key. (laughs) And that's um, that's really that's really something that I was not aware of. My friends and I were like, what? Uh, That's that's kind of crazy. Were you surprised that people would look you right in the eye and go, oh, no, we just need to give everybody an apartment?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, I was struck by my Dutch character, Renee. He struck me as too tough when I was with him. Like there was a guy we were interacting with a guy who was psychotic, and he was talking about how he had been, you know, physically assaulted in the last shelter he was in. He was telling this terrible story, and I was just like, oh, this is terrible. That's why he couldn't go to shelter. And Renee was like, no, no, he was psychotic. He was probably knowing that was true. And he's like, he has to go to shelter. He actually let him sleep on the park bench for one night, but then he would go back the next night and tell him that was it. I was struck by how harsh he was sometimes with people, how firm, but I understood more. It's like you're dealing with, like, some of the most difficult folks in the society. So, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's interesting. Like I try to, I tried to understand where people are coming from. So I mentioned Harkin and McCoy are the two guys who are overseeing the supervised drug dealing site in, in United Nations Plaza right now. Um, what's going through their minds. They have in their minds, the idea that it would be immoral and unsuccessful to require anything of anybody. Like, so there's this idea, you hear it all the time. People go, you can't make people, um, uh, you know, decide, you can't make people go clean. You can't make people quit drugs. They have to have to decide for themselves. I agree with that, but that doesn't mean that you should then be giving them everything without conditions. You can then sort of be like, yeah, you can have an apartment if you pass your drug test. That's a completely reasonable thing for taxpayers and the society to ask for somebody it also happens to be. What they need, they need somebody to say, look, you can have these things, but there's some, there's some criteria here. That's literally viewed as immoral by the folks in charge. And what I point out is that they're in the grip of what you might call a victim ideology, this idea that you can classify people in the world into victims or oppressors, and to the victims should be given everything and nothing required. That's not how anybody else does it. It's a peculiar ideology in my view, but it's a deeply political ideology with, and, and I think it's at bottom, and it helps to explain how we have such a, a terrible situation right now in the streets.
0: Well, on that note, can you talk a little bit about the, um, what did you call the pathological art, altruism uh, that, that you talk about in the book? And sort of this, this idea yeah. that you, you're trying to be nice to people, maybe. I don't think anyone questions the motivations of a lot of these folks, but, but that it's actually not helpful.
2: Yeah, so well and that gets to the title. I mean, it's it is a harsh title. The book's a harsh title. And the book is the title of the book is obviously about the folks on the street who are sick, suffering from mental illness or addiction, which is a kind of mental illness. But I do think that there's a kind of um I think there's something pathological about only wanting to supposedly help people or imagining that helping people um uh, means not asking for anything, not requiring anything, including not requiring that they follow the law. So, you know, folks living on the street, they're breaking multiple laws every day. They're violating laws against public camping, violating public laws against um, violating laws against public drug use, violating laws against public defecation. Normally, we would enforce laws equally. That's the way our system is supposed to work, equal justice under the law. We don't decide not to enforce laws against folks because we've decided that they're victims in some way, either by identity or experience. That's not something that is consistent with our Enlightenment system of governance. So the idea that you would do that, I think, is actually quite sick. Um, I think it has sick outcomes. Um, at the same time, I don't deny that, that they care You know, it's like, but the, you know, the Beatles were wrong. Love is not all you need. You know, there needs to be some discipline.
0: That's the next book. Love is not all you need. The sequel to San Francisco. It's in there. (laughs) Um, There is a a good question here. Um, You said that you switched your party affiliation from independent to I'm sorry, from Democrat to independent. What was the chief reason for doing so? And if you still consider yourself liberal, maybe like traditional liberal, would you ever switch back or consider being a Republican?
2: Yeah. Um, well, I've been, this issue of these, these identity questions are coming up uh, so much. I mean, in some ways they're like some of the biggest questions that came up. So after I finished, um, the manuscript for San Francisco, I went and changed my party affiliation. Cause I was like, I can't be in this party anymore. It's just too far gone. Um, no regrets about that. I also uh, wrote an essay called why I'm not a progressive, um, So then, the question, and I've been people just say I'm a conservative. Like so, that was like that's that's the way that people basically that's the strategy to dismiss this book. Michael's a conservative. Um, They, it's interesting. No one's actually provided any evidence of what that means. What would it mean to be a conservative? If I were to make the argument for my opponents about how I'm a conservative, I guess you would say I don't think that it's a good idea to tear down institutions that we have, however flawed they might be, before constructing new institutions in their place. So um, my the work I was doing before this, and I still do, is I often defend nuclear power plants. I think that we should not shut down nuclear power plants, because when we do, air pollution goes up, electricity prices go up, electricity reliability goes down. Um, it's a bad idea. Um, but I would see the way the panic and this, this really like – yeah, panic is the right word um, – the haste with which progressives wanted to shut down nuclear power plants – really since the sixties, with a similar panic to shut down the psychiatric hospitals. Yeah, the psychiatric hospitals, they weren't great. Like they needed to be fixed, but like like just 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 removing everybody from them. I mean I was sort of like I thought there would have been some exaggeration on it, but they were literally putting people on the street. Like they were taking them out of hospitals and putting them on the street because they just decided these hospitals were so terrible. I see that same thing behind defunding the police. We've got to just shut down uh, the police station. I mean, Vicky Beach here, who's here from Seattle, was there when, like, the Seattle city government decided to shut down an entire police precinct building in the Capitol Hill neighborhood and turn over the, you know, a several block area to out of town anarchists with no accountability. Like, what's going on there? It's a kind of moral panic. So, if that makes me a conservative, fine. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> fine. I guess the reason I still I would sort of use the word liberal is I do believe in this thing we call the enlightenment, the enlightenment tradition. I think there's, you know, um, there's problems with it. It's imperfect, but it's kind of the best we've got. And it's basically just, you know, equal justice under law. There are institutions that civilization depends on, including policing, including psychiatric care. I would now add rehab to that. Um, you know, uh, uh, functioning electrical grids, like where you're providing cheap and reliable electricity, that's necessary for civilization. When you don't have it, as Texas proved last year, people die. So my, my concern, so I kind of go, we're in this ironic position because I think in many ways, in many situations, it's conservatives who are defending these, what I would consider, liberal institutions. Um, I think the traditional conservative view has been, that family has to be the bedrock of a functioning system. I, do, I love my family, and it's, you know, argue it's really the most important thing to me, and I think it's really important for a functioning society. But I do think the difference is that a liberal would sort of say, families are wonderful and we should have them. Not everybody has them or has them functioning, and so that's why you have functioning liberal institutions, including public schooling, policing, psychiatry, electricity, and all the rest.
0: Well, you know, we do talk about policing in the book as well. And we, we do have a question here um, asking you to really sort of expand on um, the connection between homelessness policy and anti-crime policies.
2: Sure. We are also in the midst of a massive national debate around crime and policing. Um, You know, we um, just today, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, came out and very strongly said that President Biden supports an increase in funding for the police. So we are a really long way from 18 months ago when Mayor Breed of San Francisco, but many other mayors called for defunding the police. As soon as they did so, the police were being demoralized. Um, They were, you you know, police are human beings. I don't think a lot of progressives really... Um, are are understanding that there's been a lot of dehumanization of the police. There's obviously s- some terrible police, you know, and just like there's terrible people in any institution, they should we should have consequences for them. They should be moved out. But it turns out that police policing is really important. And I think what I for this book, one thing that I was so struck by is that, in fact, the evidence that policing prevents crime is very strong. Policing uh, good policing prevents homicides. And I say that um, very strongly because there have been progressives, including there was a a man on 60 Minutes a a month or so ago who just said outright that police don't prevent crime. That's absolutely absurd. Um, uh, uh, Police do prevent crime, and that we now know there's now a bunch of evidence that when police, um, for a variety of reasons, pull back from policing, um, it increases homicides, it increases crime, uh, that simply having police present, um, Reduces crime without arresting anybody. Um, the other thing, in terms of shutting down open-air drug markets, this always shocks people. You can shut down open-air drug markets, like the one that exists currently in United Nations Plaza, um, without putting anybody in prison. You might even be able to do it without arresting anybody. That sounds totally shocking, but we have these cases where the police gather huge amounts of evidence on the drug dealers they then go to the drug dealers and they're like, look, we've got like a three ring binder of a case against you. And we're going to send you to prison or you can stop dealing drugs outside in this area. And you violate it one time and you're going to go to prison. Worked really well in High Point, North Carolina. So I think I, or sometimes I go on Twitter and I'll be like, I'll be like, um, I'll be like, well, in Portugal, they arrest people that use drugs publicly. I proved it because I had the head of the Portuguese drug program on a Zoom interview and I put the clip on Twitter And people are like, it's not true. They don't put people in prison for their addiction. And I'm like, I'm like, do you think, I think there's a lot of people that actually think arrests are the same as going to prison. Arrest comes, of course, from the French word to just to stop somebody, to halt them from doing it. You don't have to even take them to the jail. So I think there's just a lot of policing functions that people have not appreciated, at least not as much until recently. Um, and a fair amount of gaslighting about what really occurred. But I guess what I would say is, you know, what the Dutch, when I when you interview the Dutch about their system, they talk about the police getting softer and playing more roles, more roles in terms of dealing with people with mental illness or addiction, and then the social workers becoming a little bit more like the police. And I think that's the right way to be headed here. That there's collaboration, but also the, the police need to become more emotionally intelligent, more sophisticated. More needs to be asked of them, but also we need social workers to bring some of that toughness.
0: You you definitely share some anecdotes about people who say, you know, this person was a real pain, (laughs) but, you know, they really helped me gets where i needed to go even though they were really annoying and yes. so you know harder social workers softer police i think was, was what you said we do have another question here um somebody asks um will you ever run for office i don't know if you know mr schellenberger has already run for office <laughs> did quite well in the governor's race of 2018 as a democrat no longer but uh will you ever run again for office
2: yeah, and let me, before I, I say something about that, let me just say, I wanted to say one other thing about the policing, which is that I feel like I finally, after three months of the book's been out, um, I feel like I've boiled down what I wanted to say about it, which was that if you don't want mass incarceration, and I don't, like, why would you want, nobody wants people in prison if you can avoid it, and you don't want mass homelessness, and you don't want open-air drug scenes, there's three key Ps, policing, psychiatry, and probation, And what's shocking to me is how little we've used probation. We now have electronic monitoring. We've always had, we've had drug testing for a long time, but um, yes, is it an invasion of privacy to have an electronic monitor? Yes. But that's so much better than sending people to prison. People can be at home with their kids, raising their kids, um, avoiding, you know, the electronic monitor, make sure you're not going back into the uh, open drug markets. Um, So I would say for Democrats and Republicans and everybody Let's lean more on policing, psychiatry, and probation. That will allow us to avoid mass incarceration while also solving this problem. Um, as far as your question is, no, I'm not running for office.
0: Sorry. As of today, we shall see.
2: But somebody needs to. And I, <laughs> I did tweet out. Somebody today, should do something. Yeah, I mean, there's a funny. Um, like I don't know if you guys saw. Like after the the big, tra- there's a there's a bunch of uh, trains have been getting robbed in L.A. And there's all this looted. Uh, packages. And Gavin Newsom, our governor, went there and he was like, what's going on here? And somebody got to get to the bottom of this. And Babylon Bee, which is like the onion for conservatives, tweeted something like, you know, Gavin Newsom pledges to get to the bottom of who's in charge of California. (laughs) Um, And it went viral. And it was like and it was like and, you know, but then I read today in Politico that it's not clear that Republicans are going to field a serious candidate for governor. And again, I mean, I'm not a Republican, but I'm a little bit like somebody needs to run. So part of my, I've had a chance to meet a fair number of fairly affluent people and even some billionaires in recent weeks. So I'm hoping that maybe one of them will, will run and self finance their campaign. So I said, look around the room. <laughs> like, um, somebody <laughs> needs to do it because um, even if they, you lose uh, we got to challenge this, this existing regime because um, I just kind of go for waiting another four years, Sounds like a really bad idea.
0: Well, you do talk in the book about Governor Newsom, especially with regard to the sort of nimby yimby wars and how um, and, you know, I think political courage, I think, was the word that somebody used in the book to describe uh, or cowardly, I think, was maybe the word to describe his approach to um, to the housing crisis, to just the inability to build, you know, any Housing, really, you know, certainly not to the degree that he promised at the outset of his administration. Can you talk a little bit more about your thoughts on Newsom's administration with regard to not just homelessness but but housing?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, the first thing about um, Gavin that you're struck by is, first of all, he's been dealing with these issues for for over twenty twenty five years since he was a member of the of the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco. Has he though? Well, I mean, I'm not saying he's been dealing <laughs> with them well. <laughs> But, I mean, he he gave a speech in uh, January 2020, State of the Union speech, on the so-called homeless crisis that was really about drugs and mental illness. It was an incredibly good speech. Um, He also promised to build, I think, um, one and a half million new housing units um, during his time in office. And then you just – I mean, then you look at what he's doing, which is like almost nothing on these issues. I mean, there's been some good stuff in terms of ADUs on housing, but – but certainly on the drug and alcohol crisis, nothing. Um, I think the most important one of the most important interviews in San Francisco is with um, a widely recognized uh, psychiatrist named uh, Dr. Thomas Insull, whose own book, by the way, on this issue is coming out in the spring. And he and I talked over Zoom and it was like we were finishing each other's sentences. We were like, you know, brothers from another mother. And we, I was and finally I'm like, dude, so you talk to the governor. So like what's going on? And he's he's also a political person, so he just kept saying over and over again, um, "It's a leadership problem." I counted in the transcript; he said it's a leadership problem six times. <laughs> so obviously, this is a problem that start is at the very top. Um, I think the the it's not a very complicated explanation. I think Gavin is afraid to counter ACLU. He's afraid to counter George Soros. He's, he's afraid to counter Housing First. Um, I mean, there is the centerpiece of this book, which which one of the centerpieces of the agenda is universal psychiatry, which most progressives I think almost all progressives would support. if you support single payer universal health care, you should support universal psychiatry. We called it cal psych, um, and I find that with my most progressive friends, when they ask me what I want to do, I say, uh, we want to get people the treatment they need we want cal psych uh, it's perfect for Gavin to pick up and run on. <laughs> um, if he won't do it, then I hope I hope a Republican or an independent will.
0: Uh, I do want to talk about Calsec because that's a big part of your of the sort of answer here. But you know, is that has that been a bit of a difficult sell? I mean, we're coming off of the you know the EDD sending out billions of dollars. You know, we're not exactly running things. Right. <laughs> out of Sacramento um, is, you know, the answer. How's that flying? The answer right. being like a big, a big sort of lumbering state agency.
2: Right. So so I'm so I'm calling for Cal Psych, which is basically arguing for a single uh, new state agency to do what I think the counties can't. And part of the reason is that uh, this the street addict population is highly transient Um, They move around a lot. um, And also sometimes the facilities where people need to be, whether it's shelters or residential care or psychiatric hospitals, they don't need to all be in downtown San Francisco. There's just not that much room or Venice Beach. Um, um, They should do their part. But often where the large open drug scenes are, aren't exactly where the institutions need to be. So a statewide system would allow people to be where they should be. The other thing is we know about overcoming addiction. It's really hard to quit doing heroin when everyone around you is, is using heroin. It's a triggering response. One of the most um, famous studies is American soldiers who were addicted to heroin in Vietnam when they came back to the United States. Most of them were able to quit without much problems, in part because they just weren't around it. So, you know, for, for some people require are gonna require more care, like people with schizophrenia will be a lot more difficult. But for the average twenty-something dude who is addicted to fentanyl, like the guys that we saw in the supervised drug dealing site in San Francisco, um, that guy, those guys, they just need they need like three to six months in an organic farm where they can have woodworking classes and take computer programming to quit their addictions go through recovery, reaffiliate with family and friends, get a job, and become independent. That's what those guys need. But they don't need that. Thank you. Um, They don't need that and should not be getting that in the tenderloin. Like, that's just the wrong – I mean, that's the wrong place for it. We know, in fact, the European studies I keep mentioning, they say do not concentrate all of your services in a single area. So what that allows is you can kind of go – Especially like, I mean, the, one of the best times to get people into recovery is right after they overdose. Well, right now we revive people uh, with Narcan and we revive them. And then we're like, OK, bro, good luck, man. <laughs> Within hours, they're back smoking fentanyl. So if you could be like, hey, would you, you like
0: to do woodworking? <laughs> would you, yeah. How
2: about a woodworking and organic farm? <laughs> um, I say that because I'm trying to appeal to liberals, as you <laughs> can tell. Um but I think the point is that it's got to be a proper alternative. It doesn't have to be. I mean, it can be in the Central Valley where, where the costs are much lower. So that's the case for Cal Psych. It's also I just don't think these things I think I don't think hard things get done in a decentralized way. So when you read, there's nothing more demoralizing than reading by the way 30 years of reports from various government agencies about how to fix the homelessness problem. I mean, you're just like, wow, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. <laughs> um, but they all sort of say they all say there should be better coordination between agencies. Forget about it. The agencies don't coordinate you have to have a hierarchy so that's what CalPsych will, will do it, its ceo will report directly to the governor best in class that person should be from wherever in the world that is the best person uh six regional directors assertive caseworkers who report to the regional directors they have access to all of these treatment facilities psych beds shelters they've got then mobile teams on the ground getting people the care they need um Look, in 40 years, will Cal Psych have become a fairly bureaucratic and cumbersome organization? Probably. And it will probably be, need to be dismantled and replaced by something else. But for now, it, there's no reason it couldn't form as a skunk works, meaning um, the classic skunk works model is that Lockheed Martin was so dysfunctional that they created a whole new uh, organization on a separate campus to build I think it was the F-16 or someone may know, um, to build a whole new uh, jet plane. They had to move the employees to a different institution. That's what I'm saying is that you can't get Health Right 360 and Glide Memorial to do this. This has to be done by somebody in a different hierarchical structure with a mandate to actually solve the problem. Right now, the incentives are totally messed up. People are paid to treat people, they're not paid to get people into recovery. They're not paid to get people into independence. So CalPsych would have a mandate to do that. It's, I think it's exactly what we need in California. There's no reason that California not only couldn't be as good as Amsterdam and Lisbon, but even better. We should be best in class. This is the greatest, country, this is the greatest state and the greatest country in the world. Look, we have a $30 billion surplus. We have plenty of resources. The EDD thing, yeah, it just shows that that agency is completely broken. They they lost $30 billion of taxpayer money to criminal gangs. You got to have something, you got to stand up something that is separate, hierarchical, transparent, effective. um, And it would be, I think, um, much more easy to monitor that resource um, than in today's opaque agencies.
0: Why hasn't the housing cost in San Francisco gone down? Like, if it's so bad out there, and, and no one's saying it's not because yeah. we've all walked past it, but why? Why does Zillow tell me <laughs> that right. that ha- that even a you know was the what was the very famous it's not famous but you know so it was in the news recently like the the worst house on the best block it was just shack for two yeah. million dollars like why isn't what's happening there translating into property prices because it seems to me that's where the political will comes yeah. if people see the value of their homes decreasing. Then you will have the candlelight vigil on City Hall going yep. way to damn minute. So why hasn't that happened yet?
2: Because people still believe in San Francisco.
0: Dang it! Well, hopefully we'll cure them of that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> people,
2: I mean same in Bur- I mean, I mean, people still believe that we're going to fix it. I mean, I, um, and which makes me happy actually, because I think that one of our problems is cynicism and that people don't think. I just got back from Miami, which was actually as great as people said. Um, and everybody there is like, nah, nah, we left California. And I was kind of like, well, yeah, you guys gave up. And so we're going to be back here fighting for our our city and state. I mean, I think that it is a problem. You're right. I mean, you hear the policymakers sometimes say it. They'll be like, hey, where else are you going to go? You know, nothing's as great as California. And... They're kind of right. I mean, um, <laughs> look, we love, like, we're here for a reason. Like, we love this place. I mean, we just, you know, I mean, and I think the other thing is that, of course, you can escape it. I mean, when I would talk to people about doing research on this book, they'd go, yeah, that's why I don't go downtown. And it's like, Ugh. I saw that movie. It was Elysium, and it was a nightmare. It was dystopian. Um, So, yeah, I mean, ultimately, we were in some ways we should be glad because this was, you know, this problem was being contained in the Tenderloin, in Skid Row. And then the drug crisis, the opioid epidemic variety of factors made us that it was no longer contained and it became something the city had to deal with. That's an opportunity for us to 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 make the changes that we need to make that I think will make that will redeem our moral character, which which is currently tarnished
0: well it does seem like for something like cal something that's that big um that it might require a ballot measure just somebody who studies politics it that's um and i'm not saying ballot measures are always the best idea but it's not clear that you're ever going to get the kind of political will that you need especially you've got when you've got people who are representing rural districts who are saying i don't want this I don't want right. I don't want to San Bernardino based rehab centers. Thank you very much. And then you have the people in the urban centers who also don't want to do this. So it, it seems like it might be something that has to come from from the people as it were. Have any of your billionaire friends offered to bankroll a ballot measure for CalPsych?
2: Yeah, I did. I was involved in a in a in a pretty good ballot measure and even raised a little bit of money for it in 20 in 20 late twenty twenty nineteen twenty twenty. 2019 2020. But ultimately, it fell apart. It just didn't have the support. I found the donors were not educated enough. And that was part of the reason I wanted to write San Francisco is I felt like the donors were asking me questions that I needed time to really lay out and explain. Um, I'm not running for governor. But if I were governor or ran, what I would say is you come into office, you do a bunch of stuff that we, I describe in San Francisco that we need to do, shelter first, treatment first, um, housing earned, as executive order to the extent you can, um, and that would survive in court against ACLU. <laughs> Um, you would then present uh, a set of legislative vehicles to the legislature and you'd be like, let's go guys. If you don't want to do it, then I'm going to campaign against you in the fall or in two years. And then I'm all, and then you would also just work to go put on a ballot initiative. Governors have, um, a lot of power, um, both in terms of the executive orders, but also just to go to their donors and to other billionaires in the state and go, come on guys, we can't count on the legislature. It's broken. I mean, Sacramento is just such a, petty town in some ways. And the concerns are just very provincial. I mean, it's so weird in some ways because like California, it's just like California. It's like this, just whatever we are now, like the fourth or fifth largest economy in the world. And yet like the concerns of your average legislature are so provincial and so petty. Um, I do think they could rise to the occasion, but you need a governor that is going to lay out the solution, and it's a comprehensive solution. I mean, you have to remember, we've been voting for—I've been here now um, almost 30 years, and we've been voting for ballot initiatives. We have the Mental Health um, Services Act, which we passed in, I believe, 2004, which raises almost $3 billion a year now for this issue. It's almost all wasted because it's just all for voluntary care, whereas we need a significant amount of conservatorship and assisted outpatient treatment. But, yeah, I mean, a governor could do this. It might require ballot initiatives, but she or he might be able to get it done through the legislature as well.
0: Uh, we have time for one last question, and I would like to let, end on a hopeful note. Uh, this is a question that says, what can individuals do to make a change?
2: Mm, great question. There are there is so much that all of you can do. I mean, I think the first thing is just to um, – I mean, I, when we said – we're having an after party, by the way, and so we were – I was like, "What are the, what are the goals of it? Inspiration building relationships, and then finding resources for this work. There's so much that people can do to be active. Certainly, social media is really game-changing in terms of getting the word out. Um, San Francisco has been reviewed. It just got a very positive review in a Swedish newspaper today. It's been reviewed by the second-largest Spanish newspaper. It's been reviewed by The Economist, The Telegraph, The New York Times. No, not mentioned yet by the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, LAUGHTER you know, and yet somehow people have found out about it, despite it not being in the Chronicle, um, which is great. So social media is super important. Um, it was—it's been a pleasure to work with uh, um, uh, Layton Woodhouse, um, Erica Sandberg, Jenny Shao. Uh, they are true journalists, true reporters, very brave. So we need more citizen journalists, people that like to go and investigate. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, like I didn't want to go cover that story about a supervised drug dealing and drug site. I had just got done praising Mayor Breed, and I'm being accused right now of being um, people are like you're giving me whiplash. You said nice things about Mayor Breed, and now you're saying mean things. And it's kind of like I'm not the inconsistent one, um, <laughs> but we need reporters to do reporting. We need journalists. We need we need citizen journalists to be out there doing this reporting. And, and that's what social media has opened up. Um, We certainly need people to give money. Um, I haven't plugged it yet, but we do have a coalition called the California Peace Coalition, um, which we want to replicate to other states, but it consists of um, recovering homeless addicts. It it consists of parents whose kids are homeless addicts on the street, and it consists of parents whose kids have been killed by fentanyl and then then other uh, community leaders. So we need people to donate to California Peace Coalition. Yeah. Yeah. We need people to get involved and build this movement because ultimately that's what's going to save the state.
0: Well, thank you so much. For anyone whose questions we didn't get to, the answers are in here. I promise (laughs) all of them. Um, We want to thank Michael Schellenberger for joining us today and discussing this book, San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. We also want to thank our audience here and, of course, watching and participating live. Now, if we all here in the room, Michael's going to be signing books Right here on stage in just a few minutes, so hang tight, stay seated. And if you didn't pre-order one and would still like one, there is a book team outside the door, and you can go out there and buy them. Thanks again for tonight's program supporter, Ken and Jacqueline at Broad Family Fund, for making the books available for everyone here in person. And if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making both in-person and virtual programming possible, please visit CommonwealthClub.org slash events. I'm Melissa Kane. Thank you for being here. Stay safe and healthy. Thanks again to Michael Schellenberg.
1: Thank you.